Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Thursday, May 20th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. The CDC updated their guidelines on the spread of the virus via surfaces. Is it safe to go swimming? How much of an effect does population density have on the spread of the disease? And throwing cold water on that NASA discovers a parallel universe story. Some tips to improve your walking. And the most heartwarming YouTube channel to go viral in a long time. Starting out with some good news and bad news. The bad news is that confirmed cases are approaching 5 million worldwide, and the average number of daily new cases is higher than ever. But the relative good news is that the average weekly number of fatalities worldwide has been decreasing. The number of cases are highest in the U.S., followed by Russia and Brazil, where cases are mounting rapidly. 2.4 million workers filed first-time claims for unemployment benefits last week here in the U.S. Japan and Sweden joined the nations facing recessions. And sobering news surrounding new studies, quoting the New York Times. In Italy, new research shows that the outbreak there probably took hold weeks before the first confirmed cases, meaning that by the time the country imposed a nationwide lockdown in March, the virus might have already been widespread. New estimates from disease modelers at Columbia University also show that if the United States had begun imposing social distancing measures one week earlier in March, about 36,000 fewer people would have died in the pandemic. And if the country had begun locking down cities and limiting social contact on March 1st, two weeks earlier than when most people started staying home, about 83% of the nation's deaths would have been avoided, the researchers estimated, end quote. Domestic flights are resuming in India next week. China is implementing strict lockdown orders in the northeast province of Jilin to prevent a small outbreak from becoming a, quote, big explosion. And New Zealand Prime Minister Ardern has floated the idea of four-day work weeks to help with flexible workspaces and to boost domestic tourism. And lastly, the Exposure Notification API, developed jointly by Apple and Google, went live on devices yesterday, if you update your software. 22 countries have requested the API, although the UK says that it will not use the Apple-Google app, and Australia has already developed their own. To use it, you first need to download an authorized app to enable exposure logging and then consent to using the API, and you'll consent before if it shares a positive test result. Further adding to privacy restrictions, Apple and Google note that it is designed to be disabled after the threat of coronavirus passes. Early on when this podcast began, we spent a lot of time discussing how long the virus can live on various surfaces. And it's likely a lot of you repeat these numbers in your head as you go about your day, disinfecting doorknobs and groceries, being cognizant of what you touch when you go out, four hours on copper, 24 hours on cardboard, 72 hours on plastic and stainless steel. Well, the CDC has just updated their guidelines to say that the virus probably doesn't spread that way at least not in huge ways. The guidelines now focus on person-to-person spread. And after that, touching surfaces has been moved under a heading called the virus does not spread easily in other ways. 
and reads, quote, It may be possible that a person can get COVID-19 by touching a surface or object that has the virus on it and then touching their own mouth, nose, or possibly their eyes. This is not thought to be the main way the virus spreads, but we are still learning more about this virus, end quote. Now, I am certainly not saying to stop disinfecting items or washing your hands or taking whatever precautions you were. After all, as the CDC acknowledges, we are still learning about this virus, and they have revised their guidelines a number of times. But this does add up with other evidence that's been emerging as time goes on, so maybe, you know, stay vigilant, but don't freak out too much if you think you missed a spot while disinfecting your jug of milk. And on the note of what is and isn't safe, one thing that I had in my head as a hard no turns out is maybe possibly okay. That is swimming. To me, the idea of dunking my head into a body of water with a bunch of strangers who may or may not be infected sounds horrifying, but several experts say it may be okay. Professor Karen B. Michelle's chair of UCLA's Department of Epidemiology said, quote, There is no data that somebody got infected this way, which actually has become my least favorite type of quote during this pandemic, because there's so much that we don't know that hearing there's no data does not feel like much of a green light to me. However, Paula Cannon, a professor of molecular microbiology and immunology at USC's Keck School of Medicine, gave me slightly more hope, saying, quote, I can't say it's absolutely 100% zero risk, but I can tell you that it would never cross my mind to get COVID-19 from a swimming pool or the ocean. It's just extraordinarily unlikely that this would happen, end quote. And going back to those CDC guidelines, they say, quote, there is no evidence that the virus that causes COVID-19 can be spread to people through the water in pools, hot tubs, spas, or water play areas. Both of the professors and the U.S. Masters Swimming Organization say that the chlorine in most pools is enough to inactivate the virus. And Professor Michels says the dilution effect in the ocean and large lakes is humongous, so there's probably no risk of infection. You can also read more about salt water and fecal matter risks at the link in the show notes, but the TLDR is that there's probably no risk. All of that said... If you are going to go to any type of public beach or pool, pay attention to your local ordinances and take all the precautions you would in any other public space. You know, maybe you won't catch it in the water, but you certainly could from being around other people in general. We've been following the developments of a few lines of thinking recently. That the virus may spread more indoors, especially the longer that you're in one place, and that more people seem to be getting infected who have been staying at home. There's a great recent piece in Wired that connects those dots, provides some historical context, and proposes a few solutions. I'm only going to focus on a few aspects of this piece, so if you want a long read, I definitely recommend it. Link in the show notes. So a lot of people point to population density as one reason the virus spread so much here in New York City. And that may be right, but maybe not in the way that most people think about population density. Quoting Wired, Cities like Wenzhou and Xinjiang with lower population density than the locusts in Wuhan had more infections than high-density cities. Hong Kong, with an average density of 6,300 people per square kilometer, 
has 1.4 cases per 10,000. And on the flip side, New Orleans, with a population density of 431 people per square kilometer, reports 1,718 cases per 10,000, end quote. So what's up? Well, backing up a bit, the article points out how public health as a concept literally began with cities and infectious disease prevention, how life expectancy for city dwellers used to be far worse than for country-living counterparts, and how a 1917 article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, written just a year before the outbreak of the 1918 flu pandemic, said that the single most valuable thing a city's public health department could do would be to ensure that an infectious person could isolate at home. We've likely all heard now, if someone gets COVID-19 in a mild enough form to recover at home, they should be isolated from all other household members for 14 days. But for so many people, how would that even be possible? They'd need their own room, their own bathroom, access to two weeks' worth of supplies. I mean, the fact is, most people don't have those resources, and in urban centers, certainly don't have the space. A recent breakdown of COVID-19 deaths by zip code in New York City, as well as a new analysis from the Furman Center at NYU, shows this in grim light. Quoting Wired, Mortality rates were higher in neighborhoods with lower incomes and less density across the geographic space, but more density in a given home. That is, more people sharing a room or an apartment. Parts of the city with more renters living in overcrowded conditions had higher levels of infection, even though they had lower population density, end quote. Robert McDonald, lead scientist at the Nature Conservancy, pointed out in opposition to thinking that general population density, or perhaps the subways, were the main cause of spread, quote, the densest blocks in New York are in Manhattan, and that is not where the cases of coronavirus are most frequent. They're most frequent in Brooklyn and Queens and in poorer neighborhoods. In Manhattan, you might have only two people in a studio apartment, and in parts of Brooklyn or Queens, you might have a family of five or six people in a room that size, end quote. And the class and race differences that may lead to this housing inequality lead to other factors contributing to higher rates of infection. Quoting Wired's conversation with Molly Frank, an epidemiologist at Harvard Medical School, people who don't have sick leave, who might lose their wages or jobs if they don't show up, they don't have the option of sheltering in place. They're out in the world with more chances to encounter the disease and bring it home to the people they live with, end quote. And as Wired says, quote, if letting people shelter in place is valuable, people need shelters and they need places, end quote. If spread within homes is as major a factor as it is proving to be not just of coronavirus, but likely of most infectious diseases, cities need to do more in the future to ensure there is enough space allocated to housing so that all people can have personal space and not merely as a luxury. As Wired points out, it's a matter of public health. You might have seen a number of headlines this week saying that NASA scientists discovered evidence of a parallel universe where time runs backwards. And if not, here's a quick summary. A few years ago, scientists discovered some strange findings from the Antarctic Impulsive Transient Antenna, or ANITA, which is basically a helium balloon with a bunch of antennas on it that flies 37,000 meters above the Antarctic ice sheet, trying to detect high-energy particles called neutrinos. Quoting CNET, Over the years, ANITA has detected a handful of anomalous events, 
Instead of the high-energy neutrinos streaming in from space, they seem to have come from a strange angle, through the Earth's interior, before hitting the detector. These findings can't be explained by our current understanding of physics. End quote. The New Scientist article from last month that all of this week's chatter was based on describes the strange angle as exploding out of the ground rather than it coming down from above from space. It goes on to say, quote, All sorts of suggestions rooted in known physics have been put forward to account for the perplexing signal, and all have been ruled out. What's left is shocking in its implications. Explaining this signal requires the existence of a topsy-turvy universe created in the same Big Bang as our own and existing in parallel with it. In this mirror world, positive is negative, left is right, and time runs backwards. It is perhaps the most mind-melting idea ever to have emerged from the Antarctic ice, but it might just be true. And the article pauses there with an ominous set of ellipses before instructing you to subscribe to continue reading. While we can hazard a guess that many folks talking this mirror universe hypothesis up this week didn't venture beyond the paywall, Jackson Ryan over at CNET did read the whole article and also spoke with a number of other physicists to clear up some of the misconceptions being spread around the internet this week. While Ryan cops that the findings are mind-boggling, scientists do have other theories besides parallel universe such as the idea that the Antarctic ice itself might be causing the strange angles and anomalous behavior of the neutrinos. And Durant Lewis, an astrophysicist at the University of Sydney, says, quote, There are a number of potential candidate particles that could account for the results from ANITA, end quote. Lewis also says the parallel universe theory isn't necessarily wrong, but there's probably some other explanations that are more likely. Thinking outside the box to help solve problems is great but believing something without sufficient evidence or media critique is less so. So, as exciting as it is to imagine a parallel universe without the coronavirus pandemic and other hardships of recent history, this particular occurrence probably isn't evidence of that. And hey, if I learned anything from Avengers Endgame, it's that, as bad as this might be, what if this is actually the best of all possible worlds? Alternate universes aren't necessarily better. If you're like me, or seemingly everyone else in my neighborhood, you might be taking a lot of walks right now as a relatively safe way to get out of the house, get some fresh air, and get a little movement in your day. If that's the case, here are some interesting tips to think about or try out next time you go for a walk. So our gates, the way we hold and move our bodies as we walk, is something that we learn from our environment, watching our parents and others as we grow, and something we might adjust, consciously or not, based on cultural expectations, like swaying your hips too much or not enough. Your gait may have also changed from injuries or other conditions affecting how you move your body. Tatiana Massar, a dynamic movement and mindfulness teacher, suggests taking stock of your gait and playing with different ways of changing it up, because, quote, there's usually a huge leak of energy when our gait is unbalanced or restricted. She says that many of us aren't using our counter-lateral movement pattern, or swinging the opposite arm and leg forward as we walk, to our full potential. One exercise you can do to get used to really using that full potential of cross-lateral movement when walking is to stand in one spot and swing your arms back and forth, letting your pelvis rotate side to side as you do. 
allow a bit of a bounce in your knees, and once you've got the hang of that, start taking steps forward and really swinging your arms as you do. It's sort of an exaggerated version of walking, which is actually closer to a natural gait. And practicing this on occasion, as goofy as it might feel, can help bring small elements of that natural gait back into your usual gait. Another tip, especially these days as we all stare down at our smartphones, a lot of us have a habit of looking slightly downward as we walk. Quoting Messar, The head adds 6 to 8 kilograms of weight, but by tilting the head forward, it increases to something like 20 kilograms. If the head is positioned directly above the shoulders with the chin parallel to the ground, then that weight is transferred down into the feet and the ground, end quote. So try walking with your head upright, eyes looking forward, jaw relaxed, and even slightly opening your mouth to relax the root of your tongue. If you find your neck and shoulders are often sore, this might be a good way to avoid some of that pressure. And a last tip is to be aware of how you're rolling your feet as you walk. Quote, the correct technique is to roll the feet down as you step through. First, place the center of the heel, then roll the outside edge of the foot down before placing the outer toes and rolling down the inner toes. End quote. As with all of these, you should first spend some time consciously thinking about how you're already moving your body, and then just try it sometimes. Don't force your body into these totally new, different movements overnight. And really, I just think it's interesting to try out small changes to something that we usually don't spend time thinking about. And if you want to see any of these tips in motion, there are videos of each one at the link in the show notes. And finally today, you might have heard of this guy because he has gone as close to viral as you can really these days, hitting quite a few disparate corners of the web and skyrocketing from around 10,000 subscribers on YouTube to over a million in just a matter of days. His name is Rob Kenny, and he's the man behind the Dad How Do I channel, which features practical how-to videos for everyday tasks like unclogging a drain, hanging a shelf, and changing a tire. Kenny lists his expertise for distributing dadvice as having raised two adults who he still talks with, though he does note that he's not really an expert on a lot of things, he's just a dad, and that there's many different ways to do a lot of what he shares. Kenny grew up largely without his dad around and made it his own life goal to raise good adults. And now that he's done that, he says he wanted to help more people learn practical skills and bring dad vice to other people who maybe didn't have father figures growing up. And I think part of the appeal for people, why he's gotten all this attention all of a sudden, aside from the practicality and his story and earnest, warm personality, okay, there's a lot of reasons for the appeal, but also the videos are just very simple. They're pretty short, they're not overly produced, they kind of harken back to an earlier age of online video, and I think that just resonates with people. Plus, he just feels so much like the internet dad we all need right now. As Kinney says, dadvice is about more than just fixing things, it's also how to manage your life and adulting questions. And it's true, he throws some dad jokes into the videos, but more than that, he dispenses some really heartwarming and down-to-earth life advice. 
And he says he and his daughter are considering starting a podcast, tackling some of those bigger life questions. So you can be on the lookout for that. But until then, you can check out his channel at the link in the show notes, where in addition to his usual slew of everyday tips, he says he'll be starting Tool Tuesdays next week. So get stoked for that. That is all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.